I mean, some of it you can predict, some of it I'm sure we can't predict, but it's, I think it's going to be a, probably as dramatic a change, if not more so, than the introduction of the internet, because it just touches so many lives in so many different ways. Podcast Junkies, Season 2. Welcome back, everyone. What an extended time off it's been. It's been crazy. Mostly all good things and uh, a longer break than I had originally expected. But I'm really excited to be back. I'm really excited at the conversations I've been having over the past few weeks. Just because I was off doesn't mean I wasn't recording episodes, y'all. I don't know why I said y'all there. But we are kicking off with the one and only Grammar Girl herself, Mignon Fogarty. I literally just wrapped up the conversation. I like to try to have the discipline of, of recording these intros and outros after right after the episode. And I think the energy level is 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 still there and the excitement about the conversation. And I want to transform no not transform. I want to transmute. <laughs> I should have probably given this some more thought. Transfer that that energy to you guys. I don't know why that was so hard. Um yeah, she's amazing. She's so much fun to talk to, so easy to talk to as well. And I was, you know, as always, feeling a bit nervous when you talk to someone who's been podcasting for 10 years, 10 years. And it, it was an honor to talk to her. Time flew by as it usually does. And I think we managed to cover a variety of topics. Uh, you can hear all about her, her, some of her, her books that she's reading now, which were her favorite movies and, uh, just some thoughts about how the journey has been and what impact it has had in our life. And I, I was just really fascinated by uh, where she's at now. And, and, and I'm sure there's a lot of things that she didn't think would be happening when she started 10 years ago. And, and she just recently celebrated that anniversary. So please listen through, enjoy the conversation with Mignon Fogarty and stay tuned after the episode. We, the retention hashtag is back. And it, it's stronger than ever. So in case you're new to the show, then that's the, the, the point in time where I, I have a hashtag that, um, people will tweet about if they've listened through to the entire episode. And so the real podcast junkies, junkies do this on a regular basis. You know who you are. Um, glad to be back. Glad to be on a regular schedule again. And I'm really excited by, having the regular folks here and i'm really excited for you if you're brand new and you're just discovering podcast junkies for the first time this is a fantastic journey that we go on with our podcast hosts so hope you stick around and i would love to hear your feedback but for now let's get some grammar working here awkward intro into the interview but i'm trying so take two minion <laughs> Thank you so much for uh, joining me. I'm really honored to have you on Podcast Junkies. You're welcome. Thank you for asking me to be on the show. So are we at the 10-year anniversary? Because I think it was, was it 2006 when it started? We are. Yeah. Um, I just celebrated the 10-year anniversary in um, July. In July. Of launching, of launching Grammar Girl. 10 years. <laughs> it's hard to believe. It's really hard to believe. Well, congratulations. And I'm sure from your days as a science writer, it's probably hard to imagine that you'd be at this point right now. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, I think about that a lot. Like what will the next 10 or 20 years hold? You know, I, podcasting as a job didn't even exist uh, 15 years ago. So it's, it's cool that, you know, now I'm doing this thing that, that it, I never, ever could have predicted. Do you think about it? And um, do you have people now, a younger generation come up to you and ask you in terms of what's possible um, with podcasting, you know, like you said, like you said, this, this, this didn't even exist before. So are, are you, you know, do you have like maybe younger family members or, or people that look up to you or, or where, where you go to speak and they say, you know, what's possible for me? Has that changed in the last 10 years in terms of the types of conversations you're having? Not so much out in the world, but I started, um, I'm a professor at the University of Nevada now. I started yeah. that job three years ago, and we have podcasting classes for our journalism majors. You know, it used to be just radio, but now now we teach we teach specific podcasting classes to undergrads. So I'm really excited to see what some of them are going to do. How, uh, so was it, were you teaching podcasting from the time you started three years ago? You know, I think um, I'm just starting my third year and they okay. taught podcasting classes last year. I think the year before it was radio and podcasting and then they broke out podcasting separately. I don't actually teach it, which is kind of weird, but I guest lecture in that yeah. class a lot. And I, I speak to students who are interested in doing that. So what it's, are, it's been interesting to see it grow. What are some of the types of questions that you that you get or some of the t- conversations you have around podcasting in, in, in that forum? Yeah, I mean, they want to know what formats they should be using to work. You know, they ask, how long should my show be to be popular? All the things you hear in general podcasting forums. You know, they want to know if um, um, consistency matters, you know, whether it matters, whether they get a show out every week. And I tell them it does, (laughs) you know. But now, I mean, now we have shows that are doing seasons, which is a a pretty new thing. Like, I used to feel... Like you had to get a show out every week, and that was the only way to do it. But now, um, now we have you know shows like Invisibilia and Startup that are doing seasons and have proven proven me wrong. So you can do seasons too. So it's interesting to see how that's been changing. It's it, yeah, it has been because when I started two and a half years ago, it, seasons seasons wasn't really a thing. But I since I hit episode one hundred, I said, well, that's a good enough spot as any to close out season one probably the longest season ever (laughs) (laughs) hundred show season yeah i think so and you know i look at them and think gosh it would be kind of nice to take a break sometime i mean i've put a show out every week for 10 years (laughs) wow Uh, yeah and i took a break it's been almost four weeks now which is the longest i've ever taken a break but two of those weeks i traveled back home and you don't realize how much of a a break helps sometimes to sort of look back and, and really think about how you can make this show better. So I'm wondering if across the, the Quick and, and Dirty Tips network, if some of those conversations are coming up about people thinking through the, this idea of seasons as it applies to their shows, or, or, or even if it would apply since you know those episodes are so short. We have. Actually, we've had some shows um, do... Um at least not commit forever. Um, I think our one of our new shows, Unknown History, is with an author who has um, you know, books out with uh, Macmillan Publishing, who is my partner in the Quick and Dirty Tips Network. And I know that when he uh, signed on to do some podcasts, it wasn't forever. It was for a, a limited run. And it's going so well, I think he might actually end up doing more. But But it certainly is a model that that we've been considering, you know, recently that we never would have considered in the past. 
Are you still having your, your, I know that in the beginning, several of your friends were some of the early podcasters in the network. Is that still the case or have they realized how much work it is? And maybe there's some, yeah, no, all the people who were, all the people who were my friends who started aren't doing it anymore. Um, it is, it is a grind to do a weekly show. And at some point, every one of them said, you know, this was fun, but I think I'm finished. (laughs) I have a job and a life and I'm going to go do other things. And then, then we replaced most of those hosts and, and the shows continue. So that's been a great thing about the way we structured quick and dirty tips, you know, with the cartoon characters as the avatars, it's a little easier to replace someone than, um, Mm. it would be if it was their face and their their own identity. So, you know, I mean, when I started, it was just Grammar Girl, and, and I was thinking I wouldn't do this forever, and that was one of the reasons it was a cartoon character. You know, so I, I was thinking from the very beginning that, that someday it, I would hand it off to someone else. You know, I mean, grammar is a topic that could go on for 50 years. So if podcasting continues to go on for 50 years, so that would that would be fun. Well, at, at the rate you're going, this is something that's going to be like someone's inheritance. It's going <laughs> to someone's going <laughs> to get right. the Grammar Girl name. The Grammar Girl Estate, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's true, though. I mean, authors, you think about that. You think about your literary estate because when you publish books, they continue to kick off revenue yeah. for you know many many years. So actually, you do have to think about your estate as an author. And since I publish books too, it just made sense for me to think about it that way. Do you still have the, I know you put together uh, an iOS app as well is that still still going strong? It is yeah. Grammar Pop. I coded that myself really? and uh, yeah and um I'm not sure I would be able to update it. So every time a new um Apple does a new iOS update, I'm on pins and ne- needles <laughs> waiting to see if it's still going to work or if we have to pull it from the store. So every time there's an update, I'm uh, the ne- that instantly playing Grammar Pop to make sure it still works. <laughs> Where did you hone your uh, your your app development skills? Well, you know, I've never been afraid of technology, and I took I mean a tiny bit of programming in college. I think I took two classes, but I'm just not afraid of it, and I love to learn new things. So um, I discovered this tool called Game Salad, and they had a good set of educational videos on YouTube and a good forum where you could get help. And I just taught myself to do it and made an app. It it took about a year, yeah. whereas you know uh, I think an experienced developer. An experienced developer could have done it in a month, but <laughs> I had an experience. That, it's actually my my foray into podcasting came through an app because I I'm a fan of electronic music and DJ. I, I've DJed with I've got turntables behind me, so 20 plus years grew up playing parties. And then I said I wanted to create an app for electronic music DJs, and that's why I went to NMX in 2014. And uh-huh. I said maybe I'll podcast and I interview interview DJs. And I realized how hard it would be to get in touch with some of the ones I wanted to. And I said, well, look at all these podcasters here. <laughs> Maybe yeah, I'll interview it's a, them. <laughs> it's a great thing. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, but marketing up an app, I know it was really challenging because we had visions of like million dollar paychecks and somehow that didn't happen. So. <laughs> yeah, I know it didn't happen for us either, but it's a nice, you know, we've got, we've gotten great feedback from teachers and parents who use it and find that, you know, it helps their kids learn parts of speech because the game, you map, match words with their parts of speech yeah. and it's a fun, it's a fun little game, you know, it's, but it's a, uh, yeah, it's not, it's not the next candy crush, <laughs> but it, for its purposes, I'm happy with it. 
Angry, angry grammar birds or something like that. Angry grammar birds. <laughs> angry verbs. <laughs> angry verbs. There you go. How about a board game? That, it seems like that could, be, that could be something that would work. Well, I made a card game. Okay. I, love, I love board games and card games. And I think it's been two years ago, I did a crowdfunding project to make a card game called Peeve Wars, in which you um, amass an army of pet peeves, and then you use them to annoy your opponent to death. It's, it's actually... I love this game. It's yeah. so fun. And, um, but, and so I did the successful crowdfunding project and got it out to the backers, but I've been really stalled getting it out commercially for sale because, um, there's a couple different ways I could do it. I could put it up as print on demand. I could do another, um, crowdfunding project to do an expansion pack, you know, of, of additional cards, or I could just get it printed in China and put it up for sale on Amazon. But that takes a lot of advanced planning. That's probably the best way to do it. But I keep missing Christmas because it takes, you know, you have to plan four or five months ahead of time for Christmas. And I just, the last couple of years, I haven't gotten to it in time. And then when you miss Christmas, it feels like, well, you may as well just give up. (laughs) So, and I keep, when I, once I miss Christmas, I think, well, I'll, okay, I'll do that in a few months. And then I, again, don't get to it in time. So I'm hoping to have it out for next Christmas. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like fun because it's one of those things as you as you get older and you start having um, home parties with your friends. You know, we we would play. I, I I know Cards for Humanity is like a big thing. I haven't played it myself, but um, Apples to Apples is just one of these games that we just would play all the time because it was it's just a fun game and it's engaging. So I think people are always on the lookout for something physical that they can touch, especially an older generation. So I think uh, you know when you're when you're ready to give that a push, you know, let me know and definitely like to help to get the word out and get that oh, first batch. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And it's been, I mean, incredibly rewarding to see people sent me pictures of their families playing at Thanksgiving mm. and one family contacted me. They took it camping and played so much. They got the cards dirty and they wanted to know if they could get another deck, a replacement deck. So people seem to like it. It's, it's a lot of fun. Very cool. So you, you seem to have had this um, relationship with technology early on. I'm wondering what your actual earliest memory is of technology. Mm, you know, when um, I remember when my, I must have been seven or eight, and my grandpa came to visit us from out of town, and my parents said, You don't need anything, you don't want anything, don't tell grandpa you want things. And I told grandpa I wanted a cassette recorder. <laughs> and so I got this cool little um, recorder and I would um, pretend that I was doing interviews and and singing and so my my actually my first memory was audio with technology um, and then and then another big memory is I remember when the um, first person on our block got a computer yeah. um, my next door neighbor got a TRS-80 and we would go over to his house and and watch him like do stuff with it yeah. and then and I got a, a a different like I don't remember what it was, but it was some maybe a Tandy. I don't know. It didn't even have a hard drive, you know. But I remember getting my first computer and programming it to make random stars on the screen. But I, I lost interest really quickly because I couldn't save anything I did. Yeah. So, but but I definitely remember going over my, over to my neighbor's house and seeing the TRS eighty, and it was so cool. My my friend had a Commodore sixty four, and yeah. uh, and I had a Tandy one thousand with the attached cassette recorder and so like like literally that's how you would save stuff and i i mean the fact that, that we were doing anything at, at the at the rate at which it saves stuff is is, is kind of crazy right now it, yeah <laughs> but um is that in like just i'm just just digging deeper on the love of technology because i think some either people 
have an averse reaction to it, <clears throat> or it's just something that brings up this inherent curiosity that you have. And I'm wondering if it's in your family as well. Was you know people in? I know technology was earlier was was of a different type back then, but I'm wondering if that's something that was in your family. Is just a natural curiosity for you? Not not really, not um, really in my family. I mean, I, yeah, I don't remember. You know, they, they encouraged that interest in me, but you know, my mom was a housewife and my dad worked at Boeing. Um, you know, he would bring home, um, little mock-ups, like uh, little toy airplanes and stuff for me to play with. But I mean, there, there wasn't a lot of talk around my house about technology or his work at Boeing or anything like that. So not really, I think it was just somewhere inherently in me. Yeah. And that I imagine is what led you into you know, this, uh, where you eventually started doing science writing and you studied, uh, biology as well. Is, was it this just natural curiosity that you had for the, the sciences? Not really. I actually avoided science yeah. in in school. and college. I didn't take a single science class. Well, I, I think I took geology as an undergrad. You know, my, my one science requirement. You know, when I was, well, was going to say when I was a kid, um, my parents really encouraged me toward writing. I remember okay. going to the library for like little poetry classes for kids and, and reading time and stuff like that. So if I was encouraged in anything, it was on the writing and language side. And then, you know, I, I was, I was actually not interested in science at all in, um, college. And I, I was the first person in my family to graduate from college. And then I had no idea how to get a job. I, I got a degree in English yeah. because it's what I loved. And I was like, what? Pay, people won't pay me to read books <laughs> you know, or write about swords in Beowulf. Yeah. You know? So, uh, so I ended up, uh, you know, I was a secretariat and insurance brokerage and I sold signs. I really felt like I was adrift. And, um, I ended up I met my husband, who was a biologist. He worked in um, biotech in Seattle at the time. You know, and that was really at its startup y stage. And yeah. I would go hang out with him in the lab, waiting to go on dates because scientists are always <laughs> late. <laughs> and, you know, I'd be like, okay, so tell me what you're doing. And, say, and he would say, well, I'm synthesizing DNA. Well, how cool is that? Yeah. So tell me about it. And it was at that point that I got interested in science. And then I ended up going back to school. Um, after I got my undergraduate degree, I went back to school and started taking science classes. And at that time, I was thinking I would um, actually go into science and work in a lab. And I did end up going to graduate school. I got into a PhD program in Stanford and I spent four years trying to clone a fruit fly gene and you know i was really and then and, and lab work is um it's very i mean like props to the people who do it but it's yeah. very tedious yeah. and it, you can do an experiment for a year before you get a result and i i just don't have the temperament for that you know I, so i ended up uh leaving graduate school joining startups in silicon valley one of my friends was in the business school and and was um, founding a, a startup and that was the late '90s during the dot com yeah. boom and it was too exciting to pass up so I, I left graduate school and joined a series of startups and then eventually ended up working as a science writer which completely makes sense given my background but wasn't sort of the logical path I was on. That dot com boom was was kind of crazy because uh, I remember I was working at Chase and I, I was like I, ha I actually left my job <laughs> to go work and not get paid at a startup. I don't know. It was like a fervor. It was just crazy. Like you needed to have like some foot in some startup at that point. And I don't think people that were were not part of that wave understand 
people were changing their company names to end in com. It was crazy. Yeah, it was just an incredibly exciting, tempting time. Yeah, you you would you would just quit your job and and go join some dot com and. <laughs> Definitely. I did take a leave of absence from graduate yeah. school, so I didn't completely quit, but I, I never went back. So I'm wondering, uh, with the experience you've had in, in the sciences and being a science writer and um, studying biology, do you see the landscape different than it was maybe 10 years or maybe even 20 years ago with opportunities for girls and, and, and women in general to have the confidence that moving into this field or 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 making something a career out of this is something that's actually now um, that's a positive, and you know, you know, for for lack of a better term, something that's enticing for them to 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 see. Yeah, um, there's a lot more emphasis now on women, you know, encouraging women in technology. I was really lucky. I never felt any discouragement or discrimination. I was actually, my lab at Stanford was run by a woman, and mm. most of the people who worked in it were women, and actually our department chair was a woman. So I was, I was one of only two women in my class entering, but I still felt I didn't, I don't know. I, I, I think I was really lucky to surround myself with women. So I didn't feel a lot of the discrimination that a lot of people do. I had friends who struggled and had problems, you know, a lot of problems, like people telling them they should, you know, drop out and go have kids, like mm. really some bad stuff. Yeah. Um, but, but I didn't experience a lot of it myself. So, and, you know, I've been re, you know, now I teach media entrepreneurship at UNR and, you know, I'm, we, there's a lot of stories in the press about the struggles and discrimination of minorities and women in tech. And I have some um, female friends who work in the Valley. And I, I was asking them, I mean, is it worse now than it was before? Because what I'm reading makes it seem like it's actually worse now. Yeah. And they said, no, it's way better. So it's actually much, much better because it's just that people are talking about it more. And that raises awareness which is good for making people behave, you know. So you read you read about problems more in the press, but that's actually helping the the in work environment, is what they tell me. There is this aspect of I don't know if Big Brother is the right term, but this awareness that what you say and what you do can instantly instantly be communicated across the globe within seconds, and I think people are being more cognizant of like you know how they're voicing their opinions. Right. I mean, you have to know that everything you say can be broadcast much more widely than you expected. That's another thing we, we, I I also teach social media and, um, you know, the ethics of maybe you find someone who said something interesting or outrageous on Twitter and they have 30 followers. You know, if, if you embed that in a New York times story and suddenly it reaches a million people or something like that, it's legal. The terms of use allow you to do that. But is it ethical to elevate someone's comment that they, even if they wrongly viewed it as private, they may have viewed it as private. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I encourage my students to think about what kind of harm they might be causing before they just blindly go amplify someone's messages like that. Like you definitely can. It's completely legal, but you know, maybe it's, if it's someone who's using a false identity or a a, a, a protester in a dangerous country, yeah. you know, you have to think about what kind of 
danger you might be exposing them to if you amplify their message. Yeah, there's the story of the the woman who worked for a company and she made an inappropriate comment about going to Africa and, and, and literally while she was in the plane in the air with no Wi-Fi, the whole world began talking about that tweet. And so by the time she landed, she had been laid off from her job. She was like the most reviled person on Twitter, I think, for the next you know 48 hours. It was amazing to just watch it happen. It's like the whole world was seeing what was happening to her and she had no clue, all because of just the, some, some badly worded timed c- comment. Um, and right. I, I imagine she had trouble getting a job for a while after that. Right, because now if you Google her name, that probably comes up unless you, you know, pay thousands of dollars to some reputation management company or something. So, yeah, you have to be really careful what you say and and you have to think about the consequences if you're if you're amplifying someone's message. Yeah. So, Not that it's necessarily wrong to do so, but but you should just be aware at yes. least of what you're doing to someone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh yeah, words have power, right? <laughs> mhm. Absolutely. So, um, do you do you think about your place in terms of an influence to people coming up now? And and do you have conversations where you actually feel like you're guiding people in, in their direction and providing them inspiration for you know where they can take their careers? I mean, I help people whenever they ask. I don't. Um, I don't. I don't spend a lot of time reaching out to people or. Yeah. Um, trying to be a thought leader in that area. Um, I've, since I've got the university job, I've done a little bit more writing about the industry and, mm-hmm. and things like that because I'm supposed to, <laughs> you know, it's part of my job now yeah. to be out there, um, spreading my opinions, but in general, uh, yeah, I guess I just don't think about it that way. When, when I, when I'm out in the world, I think about how I'm representing language, how I'm encouraging people to think about language. So, in my capacity as a podcaster, I see myself as grammar girl and what, and I have a large following. So what role am I playing in how people think about the English language? And I spend a lot of time thinking about that and whether I'm advising people responsibly and, and what kind of um, attitudes I'm spreading in the world. So I think about that a lot. Yeah. One of the books, uh, I had a really good English teacher and so I, I understood your Beowulf reference earlier. <laughs> and one of the books that fascinated me was uh, Strunk and White's, uh, what's the, the rules of, I forget. Elements of style. Elements of style, yeah. And I'm, I think I'm a bit OCD in nature because I would actually, I can actually read paragraphs and see that there, when there's two spaces between like the period and the beginning of a sentence and w- the way apostrophes are used. And I, I think you have to have a certain personality to to be able to appreciate those things and spot those things when they happen. It can drive you a little crazy sometimes. Right. And the inter- in Strunk and White, um, the Elements of Style is really interesting because it started as um, Strunk. He just wrote up this short, um, you know, it was maybe 30 pages that he wrote for his class to follow. It was his personal opinions. Yeah. And um, in the introduction, I think it's the introduction to then um, White, who was E.B. White, who wrote yeah. – um, you know, uh, uh, Stuart Little and, you know, he wrote children's books. I think it was Stuart Little. People will be horrified if I'm wrong. Um, I love that, but, I love that book. Stuart Little is a great book. Yeah. So, um, he, he, he wrote for the New Yorker. He was, um, a big guy in the literary scene in New York and he was hired to add on to Strunk and White for a new edition. So first it was just, um, Strunk. 
And then later, White came in and added to it. And he has a really interesting introduction, White, where he talks about how essentially this is a style guide. It's one style. It's not the rules. And yet people completely ignore that introduction and, and will believe that Strunk and White is the absolute Bible when it yeah. comes to how to write. And even in the introduction of the book itself, they try to make the case that it's not the only way to do things. I always think that's really fascinating. If people were I'll, – I'll put a link to the book in the show notes as well for people who don't know. But um, it was just interesting because if, if you've never had any guidance in terms of how things sh- – should be or or or, or um, a recommendation then you know that book gives you some some good ground rules i'm wondering how how's that book held up over the years well i mean it's funny because it just had i think it's um 50th anniversary and um i was one of maybe five or six people asked to write um a little thing for it in That's great the one a uh, big paper i think it was the new york times and um most modern um, language experts have a really conflicted relationship with Strunk and White. Like the reviews were generally not positive. Um, but I know that I'm, like probably 90% of my followers adore Strunk and White. But um, it really it's it has some internal inconsistencies. Okay. And there are some things in it um, that are are kind of wrong. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Um, the section, I, I'm, uh, it's been a while since I've thought about it, but I think the section about passive voice has examples that actually aren't in passive voice. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's certainly not perfect. And the, the way it's held up yeah. as this end all be all of how you should do things is it really rubs most modern language people the wrong way but it's still used in schools a lot because teachers used it when they went to school they're very comfortable with it and it's simple and short i think that's one of its um best selling features and why it's been so popular for so many years is that for especially for students it's simple and it's short and especially that um last section added by eb white um about what is it? You know, omit needless words. Mm-hmm. There are you know a number of rules or uh, maxims that he added to the end that are very useful to remind students who are learning how to you know who are developing their writing skills. So, but then there's sections where they say like, don't use the word clever. They like they like just don't like the word clever so and say so don't use that word. <laughs> yeah, so it it has those random weirdnesses in it like that. Like don't don't use the word clever. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what, would, what would the replacement be? I guess I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Um, so, is there a book that you could recommend? And obviously, you can feel free to plug any one of yours as well. That would be a, an appropriate replacement. Right. Well, I mean, I have I did write a book for students called Grammar Girls Ultimate Writing Guide for Students. It's very orange. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a very very orange book. So, I mean, obviously, I think that's a good one. But um, you know, there are all sorts of um, college handbooks that yeah. are put out they are often spiral bound and those I find are very useful and have like just the facts. And then, I mean, for me, I rely a lot on the Chicago manual of style, mm. the AP style book and, um, Garner's modern American usage, which, you know, I'd never heard of until I became grammar girl, but Garner's modern American usage has about 900 pages oh, wow. of writing advice and, you know, about troublesome words and, 
the punctuation and everything. So if you have a question, you can almost always find the answer in Gardner's Modern American Usage. But being so big, 900 pages, you know, I hear students complain that it's hard to find something in the Chicago Manual of Style, which isn't that long. So, you know, I think students in particular are looking for things that are short and and sort of easy to use yeah. and have the big picture questions. But then for someone like me who's doing research and trying to provide the most broad perspective, you know, I, I love those big, thick books that have as many answers as I need. So it, it really depends on what your, your, what your purpose is for having the book. I think part of the allure to the, the Strunk and, and White book was the fact that it, was, it, it seemed like something you could just carry in your back pocket. I don't know that people still carry books in their back pocket but nowadays. Right. It's so short and simple yeah. and clear. Yeah. So, I mean, that, I, that is a huge appeal of that book. It's, it's probably, I mean, I'm, it's, I'm sure there's an app for that now, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, while we're on the subject of books, do you still find time to read? I, I saw recently you had posted uh, something about uh, you were reading the um, – the Dan Wells book about Los Angeles in the future. Blue screen. Yeah. Yeah. I loved blue screen that I listened to as an audio book. Yeah. So yeah, I do. It's a, it's, I have a little bit of a hard time finding time to read. I've been trying to read text books more. I just finished waypoint kangaroo last night by Curtis Chan, which I really enjoyed, but I read probably, I don't know, two thirds of the books I get through in a year are audio books yeah. because it's just easier for me to fit those in to my day when I'm you know, working out or I listen before I go to sleep at night. Um, and so that lets me get through a lot more books than I normally would be able to. But I have been trying to read um, physical books or eBooks yeah. more. I miss that. Do you, I have this, this challenge where I, I feel like I, I read and then I feel like I need to change the topic. And so I, I sometimes have three or four books that are in, in progress at the moment. <laughs> I don't know if, <laughs> if you find that or you just feel like you need to finish one book at a time. I used to do that. Now yeah. I kind of try to stick with one at a time because I've got so much else going on. Yeah. <laughs> I just can't. Yeah. What was Waypoint Kangaroo about? Oh, it's, um. let's see, it's sort of science fiction. It's about um, a guy who um, is a secret agent for a space agency. And then they, they send him, he has this uh, ability to um, hide things in like a dimensional pocket. That's yeah. why he's, kangaroo and and they send him on vacation because there's like a problem at the agency but then he gets in all sorts of trouble on vacation and ends up you know solving a intergalactic problem so it's it's a fun book it's really i enjoyed it do you uh, so what do i have to look forward to in 2050 in los angeles given that i live here now (laughs) oh my gosh yeah well blue screen that you know it, it was so um you know with pokemon go coming out I felt like it was a really good time for blue screen because it was a lot people, you know, the people had implants and it had a lot of augmented reality elements in blue, in blue screen. So you had, you know, these implants and so you could just see all these things layered over reality. Um, in much the same way that, you know, Pokemon is layered over reality in this, a very simple way compared to what's in the book. But, you know, between it was just imagine taking smartphones and, augmented reality like pokemon go and you know multiplying it 50 fold and that that's that's what you get in that book are you excited about where we're headed as a society in terms of all these things that are happening with augmented and virtual reality you know what i'm most excited about is self-driving cars i am obsessed with self-driving cars (laughs) 
<laughs> did you hear that uh, Uber is testing it in Pittsburgh? I did, and I'm yeah. so excited. I mean, if I lived closer, I would go there just to <laughs> try one. <laughs> yeah, it, I think it's the future. I mean, anyone who's old enough to remember the Jetsons or, you know, just the idea of uh, getting to a car and just having someone take us wherever we need to. You know, we, we think about, you know, I'm sh- Minority Report, I'm sure any of these futuristic movies where it seems like that's the easiest way to do it. And I think they've demonstrated that driverless cars are actually safer. Oh, than... they would be massively safer. <laughs> yeah, every time I drive, I'm like, when when are we getting self-driving cars? <laughs> Before I get killed, I hope. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it seems like a question of, um, when, not if. Yeah, and it's in the, the that test in Pittsburgh. It's happening so much faster than I thought it would. I mean, I really believe in the next, in, you know, in my lifetime, will be primarily in self-driving cars. And then you think about how that's going to change all of society. You know, I mean, yeah, fewer emergency room um, visits, fewer people needing, you know, physical therapy following car accidents. Insurance companies are completely mm-hmm. going to change. You know, car insurance is going to be completely different. Um, so, I mean, a lot of people are going to lose their jobs. You know, a lot of people oh, who yeah. are drivers. So there'll be a big disruption to the workforce. I mean, you just you think about it, and it just starts it just starts snowballing all these effects it's going to have on society, and and it's really hard to. Pre- I mean, some of it you can predict, some of it I'm sure we can't predict. But it's I think it's going to be a, probably as dramatic a change, if not more so, than the introduction of the internet because it just touches so many mm. lives in so many different ways. And I, I guess it, it'll also touch our infrastructure a lot more, you know, yeah. roads and parking lots and the way we shop and, and all of it. It's going to be massively disruptive, and I just love massive disruptions. <laughs> I, I learned a couple of uh, months ago that the, the term for the new generation, which is post-millennial, it's uh, digital natives. I don't know if you've yeah. heard of this. But these, yeah. yeah. And so I think there's just it just happens. They're born into a culture – where this is the way things are done. Like at some point you're going to be born where driverless cars are normal. Right. I've seen people post like, will my kids even learn how to drive? You know, I, they might not. And that's, that's amazing. I do have an, not an issue, but like with the idea of digital natives, you know, when I started teaching, I assumed that my students would know everything about social media and they really don't, you know, they still have to learn how to use it as a professional to learn how to use it wisely and effectively. You know, they might, they actually use social media le- even less than I would have imagined. Like most of my students aren't on Twitter. A lot of them hardly use Facebook. You know, they might share pictures on Instagram, but they, they don't use it as much as we adults imagine they do. <laughs> yeah, I think they're selective in what they do. And, and I think that there's there's some sort of attraction to the ephemeral nature of it. So, you know, that's maybe why Snapchat took off in the new Instagram moments as well as some of the stuff they're into. But I think they're more, yeah. I I think it, I I think as you get older, you know, we find that we can use it for uh, getting our message across. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's something that they're concerned with at the, at their age. Yeah, I mean, I use it far more than they they do, and that surprised me. So, but I guess yeah, I have yeah. a purpose, you know. Yeah, and they they just use it to hang out with their friends. So you like uh, science fiction books? Are you a fan of the movies as well? I am. I'm not. I'm not a fanatic, you know, fanatical yeah. fan, but I do love going to, you know, I, I, you know. I'm trying to think of. Well, I loved um, Guardians of the Galaxy. It's yeah. Hilarious, and you know the new Star Wars movie. 
the new Star Trek movie. I go see a lot of yeah. I try to. I probably go see most of them. The new, um, well, the, the the Star Wars reboot, the Force Awakens. Yeah, that was that was very nostalgic. I was actually crying at one point because I grew up with those characters. And if you think about the lifespan of those characters, they've been in my mind and my memory for you know thirty plus years. Right. And and so when something happens, try not to spoil the movie for anyone. But when certain certain characters are affected. You think about the fact that they've been living in in like your 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 memory for all this time, and so you've been carrying with them, carrying them for um, all that period. And so, as opposed to a normal movie, you watch it for two hours, you can you're not going to have that same type of connection to to characters. Right, nostalgia is a really powerful force in fiction and movies. So, changing gears a little bit, you know, we were talking about how it's been recently ten years where you've had the opinion and uh, you've had the opportunity to look back at the impact that you've had within the podcasting community. Um, and I'm wondering if you think about the term legacy at all. I've, I've been asking this question a couple of times. But as you think about you know, your, the span of your life and, and all the things that maybe you thought you wanted to do and now things that you, you've changed your opinion, things you wanted to get accomplished, are there things that are still on that list where you're like, oh, you know, this, this, is, this is one of those goals that, that I'm aiming for um, in terms of you know, the future? Yeah, I mean, one thing that... The, I'd say the one thing I've really wanted to do that I haven't done yet is write a novel. Um, mm. And I've been working on it very – I don't think it's even really fair to say I've been working on it <laughs> for five years. But I've been – had the idea in my mind and I've worked on it occasionally in spurts for the last five years. And it's one of the hardest things I've ever tried to do. And I say that you know, as someone who – taught herself to make an app and went from an English major to being a biology PhD researcher. So um, the, the complex, and I love, I love it because it is so hard. The complexity of putting together that story puzzle is so fascinating to me. And, and all the things you bring in, like, for example, we were talking about, about nostalgia. If you can bring in that sense of nostalgia or resonance with other stories into your story, it makes it more powerful for people. And so you have all these things you need to layer on top of each other to make your story compelling and, you know, emotionally satisfying for the reader. And, and I haven't got there yet. I, you know, I certainly, I don't have anything... Um, you know, I have maybe a quarter of a book written and mm -hmm. and I'm not super happy with what I have, but it's something that I'm looking forward to continuing to work on because it is such an intricate puzzle and so fascinating to me for those reasons. Have you watched Stranger Things? Oh, I love Stranger <laughs> Things. Yeah, we binge watched that. <laughs> Talk about nostalgia, man. It was hitting all the all the right buttons. It was pushing all the right buttons for the eighties kids. Right, it's a great example of that. I mean, it was we were we were watching it and thinking, where did they get those lawn chairs? They're perfect. They're so they're exactly like I had growing up. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the hairstyles, and they said they didn't use a lot of makeup on the on the on the kids, just so you you know you would just get this feeling like the awkwardness was just like coming through the screen of like the, that period, and it just it, it, it took me back to that period of time. They did a very very good job of that. It did, and I just kept wondering where they got all the props. <laughs> they were so perfect. Do you have do you have novelists who whose style you admire, and maybe you know to, you would aspire to write something like like what they've put together? I can't really say I do. I read pretty broadly. There's no one that that I say like, oh, I want to be just like them. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, no, not really. I'm wondering uh, what you would say is one of the most misunderstood things about you. 
Oh, that's easy. Um, one of them, <laughs> people always think that I'm a language nitpicker and that I'm looking for mistakes in everything they say or every email they send to me. And I'm not at all. I, I often, people will email me, they'll send me an email and then they'll send another email and say, oh, I saw a typo in that past email. I didn't, it was, it was not, it's not that I don't know. It's that it was a typo and I'm so sorry. And like, I won't have even noticed it. <laughs> so, you know, I never correct people unless they ask me for help. Yeah. You know, I'm just, I'm not that prescriptivist, nitpicky grammarian out there looking for everyone's errors. I, I do Grammar Girl because I think language is fascinating and fun. And if people want to know the, know some rules and get and improve their writing, I'm happy to help. And I put that out there so people can have access to reference information. But I am not at all um, that angry nitpicker that people often think I am. <laughs> yeah, I would assume people get very intimidated <laughs> around you when it comes to uh, grammar and either anything they, they talk to you about or, or, or write to Right. And that's why, I, you know, in the description of Grammar Girl, it says something about your fun and friendly guide to the English language. But no matter how many times I say it, people still assume that I'm, uh, I'm, the, I'm looking for errors. <laughs> Have you met uh, Helen Saltzman? No, and I really wanted to meet her at the last podcast movement. She seems yeah, yeah. great. We're on a Facebook group together, and she seems wonderful. I'd love to meet her someday. Yeah, I've interviewed her as well, and she's hilarious. I mean, she was... She did the interview when she was home, and her husband was just commenting. He, he became the third guest. He, he became the, the the second guest on the show. And she's her sense of humor. I don't know if you've heard The Illusionist, but uh, it's really, really, really funny. So I think you two would hit it off too. On that. Oh, that's I, yeah, yeah. I think we would too. Um, what have you changed your mind about recently? Oh, what have I changed my mind about? <sighs> I've actually changed my mind about a lot of language things. When I first started, I was more prescriptivist and I would be more like, these are the rules and we should follow them. Not because I was picky, but because, you know, like the AP style guide says this, so we should do it that yeah. way. And, um, you know, like, like begs the question is a phrase that ha used to have a specific meaning and it doesn't mean raises the question. Okay. So, you know, people will say, well, that begs the question of whether we should do this or that. And that's not the proper traditional use of the phrase. Begs the question has a specific meaning. It's about circular logic. Um, so, you know, if you say um, chocolate is good for you because it's healthy, that's begging the question because it's circular. But mm. nobody uses it that way. <laughs> and so my original article about that said you should stick with the traditional usage. And my more recent article says, yeah, it's that's completely a lost cause. Like, give it up. Like maybe, maybe if you want to be extra careful, don't you just don't use it at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's lost its traditional meaning. Um, so you know, there are a lot of instances like that where. I've become a, like, I'll still tell you what the traditional rule is, but I feel less strongly that, that we have to follow them all. And so, you know, I understand that my role in the world is to tell people what the rules are and that that's why people come to me. And so I always do tell them the rules, but then, you know, lately more, I will also sort of soften that with, you know, but 99.9% .9 of the people do it this other way. So, you know, can we really say it's wrong when that's what everyone is doing? And that's how language changes. Yeah. You know, I mean, egregious used to mean something good and now it means something bad at some point really? it changed. Yeah. So, you know, if you, I mean, and that, I think that's the thing that's influenced me the most. As long as I've been doing Grammar Girl, I've looked more and more at the history of language. And when you start doing that, you see how 
almost everything has changed. You know, it used to be wrong to call curtains drapes. <laughs> you know, like you start looking at all these things people adhered to so vigorously 200 years ago, and it seems ridiculous today. Yeah. So, you know, our our things that we hold on to so tightly today are going to seem ridiculous in 200 years. So that doesn't mean we should do them all now and say they're okay, but I think recognizing that that language is a continuum that's always changing gives you sort of a less stringent perspective on things and help, helps you not get so upset when you see things changing because it's just a normal part of the process. Yeah, there was a fascinating discussion about um, urban... I don't know if ebonics is the right term, but uh, uh, urban slang or the way folks in urban settings talk and, and people were saying like that a lot of the way they, the way that they talk is wrong. And then there's, I started hearing the argument, well, it's not wrong to them. And I think there's an influence about how all these cultures start mixing and and you start, there's I guess some gray area in between what is exactly the right way to pronounce something. Is it the way uh, people pronounce it when they're in, you know, the, I, the Ivy League schools and as opposed to the people who want to communicate the same message, but they've never had that education. So are they doing it wrong? It's, it's really fascinating. Right. And in, within their own community, they're doing yeah. it right. And those yeah. languages, um, those dialects, they have their own internal grammar. You know, it's not just some random way that people talk, like like Af- African-American English or, you know, the way people speak in, in the South of America. Yeah. You know, there are lots of dialects all over our country there was a an amazing book called uh, i think it was called trip of the tongue where a woman went around all over the u.s and met people talked to people who had all these different dialects and studied their languages it was really fascinating and um you know so i mean like they have their their own internal grammar and structure their, lang- their language is just like standard American English is a language. And so standard American English is what you typically use in business and publications and on TV and in education and at work. You know, you definitely are advantaged if you are proficient in standard American English. You know, yeah. we should teach students that, but we don't have to tell them that their native dialects are wrong in order to teach them standard American English. So I think, you know, and, and and you shouldn't look at people who speak a dialect. It has it's no reflection on their intelligence. Yeah. So, you know, in some ways they're almost bilingual. You know, so mm-hmm. if you hear someone speaking a, with a strong dialect, I think there's a tendency to assume that they're less intelligent. I mean, there have been studies that shown that people with a southern southern accent are viewed as less intelligent. You yeah. know, people with a British accent are viewed as more intelligent. Well, that's just not true. <laughs> It's just stereotyping. It's based on nothing. So, yeah. so it's it's important to remember that. What was your experience like with the Mandela Fellows? They were amazing. So yeah. the Mandela Fellows are a group of um, young people from Africa who come to the U.S. Um, the group that I interacted with, um, I'm not I'm not sure that I don't have, I don't know the scope of the whole program, but the students who come to the University of Nevada have an interest in entrepreneurship. So a lot of them have their own um, businesses in Africa, and they come to the U.S. on fellowships to learn more about entrepreneurship and business. And it was just a joy to work with them because, I mean, I, I just met with them for you know, an hour or two, but they're so yeah. serious about what they're doing. You know, and my understanding is they're, you know, the best of their from their country. So, of course, they're going to be amazing. But, I, I mean, I just enjoyed 
you know, their, their enthusiasm and seriousness and questions and interest. Uh, they, they, it's really fun to work with people who are so engaged in what they're doing. It gives you a different perspective because a lot of times other cultures, you know, entrepreneurship is very strong here, but I think the concept is, is probably something that's growing in other countries. And so when people come here, I think they're fascinated by all these success stories of entrepreneurs here and they feel like they can mimic that and take that back to their country. And, and, and like, I think to your point, they have this really passion for making something out of themselves, which is something that may not be taught as much in, in their own country. Right. And then, I mean, there are cultural differences. Like in some cases, I I didn't have good answers for them. You know, one woman has a program for um, getting girls into entrepreneurship. And she's saying the parents are are very reluctant because they're afraid something bad will happen to their daughters while they're out, you know, in the world trying to do this entrepreneurship. And, you know, I don't know enough about their culture to know how serious a concern that is. Like it might be true that they're putting their daughters in danger if they send them out to do business. I I mean, I just have no idea. So, you know, they, 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 they can come over here and learn what we have, what we know, but, you know, some of the things they're going to have to sort of figure out on their own too, because they're in their own culture and they're absolutely willing to do that. You know, they're not afraid at all, but, but it's interesting to hear about the different problems they face. Have have you seen a uh, international version of Grammar Girl yet? No, I haven't. You know, I've had people ask me, is there a German Grammar Girl or a Spanish Grammar Girl? And you would think there would be, but there's not yeah. one that I know of. I mean, it may just be that I don't know. But. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you have enough on your plate, I'm sure, that for, for you to be keeping up on that. But it would seem like it's just a natural thing that could be, um, you know, just changed over into a different language and this, everything that you've been doing in, in terms of teaching people how to speak in their language properly it seems like it, you could be, recreate that right i mean my books have been translated into a number of foreign languages in chinese and japanese and korean to help people learn english mm. but but i'm not aware of someone who addresses you know the intricacies of german grammar and usage for example yeah. which is a totally different thing um well, I, I definitely want to thank you for taking the time to come on. I hope uh, hope you enjoyed yourself as well. <laughs> I did. It was really fun. Thank you for the interesting conversation. Yeah, I think um, just fascinated by has been just been fascinated by your 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 journey. Uh, I'm wondering, like, who in your family is like the most surprised? You know, having known you the longest and, and seeing like what, what's been happening over the past ten years of, of you know what I guess in terms of what's possible. Yeah, I I don't know that anyone is surprised. I remember a funny instance. My um my stepdad asked when when Grammar Girl first took off and became really popular. It's not me. Everyone's like, really, grammar, grammar. And he said, Are you sure they don't think you're Glamour Girl? <laughs> are they just hearing it wrong? So That's there are funny. a number of people who can't believe grammar is so popular, but it's not so much they don't believe that I'm doing it. They just don't believe anyone cares about yeah, yeah, yeah. so much. <laughs> yeah, I think it's always interesting. Family is important to keep you grounded and, and, you know, give you perspective because a lot of times you're thinking like, oh, I'm doing this thing that's so fun and so great. And, and you know, the people that have known you the longest are usually the best people to kind of keep, help keep your feet on the ground. Definitely. <laughs> So uh, what's uh, the best place for folks to track you down online? So um, you can find all my Grammar Girl articles at quickanddirtytips.com. I founded the Quick and Dirty Tips Network, so all my stuff is there. And then um, I'm on Twitter and Facebook as Grammar Girl. 
So how fun was that? It was it was a Skype, so I normally see the guest, and she's in a great mood, great energy, always smiling, and that's contagious. And that comes through in the conversation. I think you can hear that. I think you can hear that she's having fun, that we're having fun. And as a result, I think it just makes for an enjoyable conversation. So I hope you really enjoyed that, and I hope you can send some feedback back to her and to myself her Twitter handle is Grammar Girl, and mine is podcast underscore junkies. I want to thank Cedar and Soil, who continue to provide the intro and outro music for the show. And check out cedarsoil.com for their music, for his music. George is a really great musician. You should really check out his stuff. Uh, I also want to thank... Um, Podcastica, because we're a part of their network. And check out the shows on podcastica.com. We're a proud member. We've got about 10 shows there now. And it's just a fun community. It's, it started with some fan shows, and now we've added some shows the, uh, on meditation, um, on on film. And it's a, it's a really interesting mix. Uh, the podcast producers is part of our network now, which is a great series. So check all those out. Go to podcastguide.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to this show at podcastjunkies.com. So please go ahead and do that. I'm stepping up the activity on social media. So if you're not aware, we have a, a Facebook group called Podcast Junkies Junkies, where I give folks behind the scenes videos of what's going on with uh, the episodes and what's coming up. And then I also am trying out the new Instagram moments. I'm on anchor. If you haven't tried anchor, it's really good. It's like Twitter, but it's your voice. So, um, check out all of those. And if you've made it this far, then indubitably, I probably pronounced that wrong. You're waiting for the uh, retention hashtag. So I know grammar girl is probably going to be getting a lot of activity. So let's do mignon grammar. M-I-G-N-O-N-G-R-A-M-M-A-R, M-I-G-N-O-N, Mignon, her first name, and then Grammar, G-R-A-M-M-A-R. Let us know that you made it this far. Uh, tag both her and myself, and that'll mean that you're part of the Cool Kids Club, period. Stay tuned next week. We speak to Ednan Lopez. He is the CEO and founder of Wondery, which is a great network based here in Los Angeles. We connected on Twitter and he was a podcast movement as well. They've got doing some fantastic things with the network and with their shows and a couple of new ones that are homegrown. So uh, you're going to really enjoy that conversation. Some nice overview and, and, and discussions about the state of the podcasting industry, which I thought was fascinating. And it's only a week away. Have a fantastic day, week guys uh love having you here i love being back on the mic and sharing my podcast adventure with you take care <laughs>